chapter 5. Thanks to Steve for his very helpful ministry um, in previous weeks. I think he actually had the harder parts to do. But I'm uh, not saying this bit simple either. So I was trying to think of an amusing anecdote to start my talk tonight, and I couldn't think of anything. So I want to suggest um, something that you could do. So if you wanted to, you could go to London Road tomorrow morning or to Churchill Square, and you could ask people and do a survey about um, what ideas and concepts come to mind when you mention the word church or Christianity. Um, I've never actually tried this, but I'm pretty sure that you would get a range of answers. Um, I'm pretty sure a lot of those would be negative and that a lot of people would be very sceptical about Christianity. I don't think the word freedom would be one of the the top ten words that people would say, that they would associate with the church or with Christianity. So a lot of people, perhaps they've been kind of poisoned by the media, by kind of stereotypes or by things that other people have told them would have a very, very dim view of the church. And freedom would not be something that would, would immediately come to mind to these people. In fact, quite the opposite. For the majority of people, if you mention church or Christianity or faith or Jesus, probably what would come to mind is something quite the opposite of freedom. What they would associate with church is bondage, keeping rules, a life where you're told not to do the things that you want to do, and you're forced to do the things you don't really want to do, and that, that's what people think about Christianity by and large. I would say, that's, I can't prove that, but that's my perception, having spoken to people quite a bit in my five years in Brighton. You know what? It's quite a shame, isn't it? Because according to this passage we're reading today, freedom is absolutely fundamental to the Christian life. And whatever else we may be as Christians, we should be people of freedom. And we should be known as people of freedom. We are a free people. We are not a people in bondage. We are not a people who are kind of enslaved to this grim religious system where we have to kind of obey rules to kind of keep on the right side of God. We are to be a free people. Now, sometimes non-Christians, and I'm kind of generalizing here because they're all so different, People don't want to come to church because they feel that they'll be told to do things they don't want to do. And and God will stop them having fun. And that's often because of the wickedness in the human heart. If you love your sin and you don't love God, the last thing you want to do is to come into a place where you're told you need to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ because you think it's going to ruin your life and stop you doing all those things that you enjoy doing. But I want to put it to you that sometimes the Christian church has done itself no favors either. Because sometimes we Christians, we do give the impression that Christianity is about keeping rules, it's about bondage, it's about a kind of grim set of obligations. And there are many churches, unfortunately, probably in the world today, which give this impression to non-Christians. And it's a very sad state of affairs. But tonight we're going to see that Jesus Christ, rather than restricting people, he actually sets people free. And... He doesn't stop us doing the things we want to do. Actually, in many ways, he changes our hearts and gives us new affections and new inclinations that actually we stop doing the things that we once wanted to do. We say, those things are part of my past life, part of the bondage I used to live in when I lived to follow the ways of this world. And now I'm free to live in a new way, a much better way. 
So chapter five, Paul says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That is a striking and important statement about the Christian faith. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. If someone asks you, what is the purpose of the Christian faith? This would come quite high on the list of things you could say. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Not bondage, not restriction, not law, but freedom. And we need to convey this message to people. If people believe this, they'd be queuing up outside the door to get in, wouldn't they? They don't come because they don't believe this is a place where freedom is offered. But it is. Now, there are two questions I want to address tonight, which you might ask reading this section, verses 1 to 15. The first is, does it really matter if people were teaching circumcision as a requirement for salvation? Because Paul does go on, doesn't he? He talks on and on and on about this at great length, and he expounds the theology, and he talks about this, and he's quite aggressive and vehement in his denunciation of those people that were insisting on circumcision. So the question is tonight, is Paul just being very harsh and uncharitable? I mean, I bet you're wondering what I'm going to say about verse 12. Everyone's head goes down to look at it. Verse 12. Paul is very, very harsh in these verses. Paul doesn't pull any punches. And I think if Paul preached like this in many churches today, he would never be invited back. And that's what we forget, don't we, about men of God. Often these men, they weren't polite, middle-class preachers. They were actually, they were like lions and tigers. They were preaching the word, and they, were, they weren't afraid to tell it like it was. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all go out and be offensive and rude, but Paul, he saw this as important. So we looked in previous chapters what Paul says about these Judaizers, these people who are insisting on circumcision. He said they preach another gospel, in chapter 1, which he says is no, really no gospel at all. It's a fake gospel. He says they were perverting the gospel. And he says, if anyone does this, let him be condemned. Let him be anathema. And he, as I said, as you just read in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, I wish these people would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. As I said, he wouldn't, wouldn't have been invited back to many churches. Now, if you were a postmodern, ecumenical kind of person today who kind of believes all faiths are equal and all brands of Christianity are equal, and it doesn't really matter about doctrine because it's divisive, let's all kind of get along together in this big happy clappy kind of group hug, you would find this Paul, you might find him quite offensive and quite dogmatic. You might say, well, Paul, why on earth are you making such a fuss about circumcision? If people want to be circumcised, let them be circumcised. It probably doesn't make any real difference to anything. You're being judgmental. They used to, you know, the old chestnut they always come out with, you know, do not judge or you'll be judged. You know, that is the most frequently misused verse in the whole Bible. Because there is a wrong judgment, but there is a right judgment. And when sin and when false teaching is being tolerated, we have to be straight down the line. Winsome, gracious, but very, very clear about who we are and what we believe. And Paul was. So some people, some people might say that Paul is being harsh and critical and judgmental. And, well, these people are trying to please God in the way that they understand best. God sees their hearts. They mean well. Well, Paul won't have that, will he? That's the first question. The second question is, does Christian freedom mean Christians can live however they like? Now, Steve touched on this last week. This is a very good question, isn't it? Because if, we, if we're preaching freedom and not law... Does that mean that we can just do whatever we like? We can sin however we like. We can live however we like. We can just treat the Christian life as like, you know, kind of, you know, a cruise liner going to heaven. We're just all lounging about and relaxing. No, I don't think that's what it's saying here. 
But it's a good question. Some people would say that any kind of moral imperative in the church is like legalism. So Paul is condemning legalism, and if we say to people, you ought to live a certain way, because this is the right way for a Christian to live, don't say that, you're being judgmental. You can't tell me to do that, you're being legalistic. I'm living with my non-Christian girlfriend. The church says, listen, brother, you shouldn't be doing this. Oh, you're being legalistic, you're being like a Pharisee. Is that the same thing that Paul's talking about here, when he condemns the circumcision group, the Judaizers? We'll come to that in a minute. First question, so coming back to the first question, does it really matter if people were teaching circumcision and that other people were getting confused and agitated by this in the church in Galatia, the churches in Galatia? Well, Paul insists it does matter. It matters very, very much. Let's look at verse 7. I'm going to jump around a bit. That's my, my want. I jump around a lot, but there's some method in my madness, I hope. Verse 7, Paul says, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? But I want to illustrate now by these few verses is how seriously Paul takes this issue of circumcision being imposed upon Christian people. So he uses his favorite analogy. I think Paul must have been a fan of athletics, sort of the games, because he always talks about this running the race and uses this as a picture that everybody would understand. And it, it made me think, when I was a boy at school, we used to have to do this kind of hideous cross-country run. Has anyone ever done a cross-country run before? Yeah, but you, but you were good at it. You probably won, didn't you, every time? Um, it was the first thing on a Monday morning, and I remember doing it in the snow, and I remember doing it in the mud, and it was always, you know, you're tired after the weekend, your little shorts, and just running across the, the school playing fields. And there was a teacher, um, I think he must have been a sergeant major in the army, in one of those kind of 1950s kind of national service camps, he was standing in his nice tracksuit, barking orders and telling us to kind of go around the, the big field and the other field at the bottom. But you know what? The bottom field was concealed by a hedge. When the teacher wasn't looking, some of the naughty boys, never me of course, used to cut across and cut off half the field to try and avoid running. We were exhausted. You know? <laughs> now, imagine on that day someone had appeared at a gate at the side of the school field and said, listen boys, this is the way, come through this gate. We all obeyed him, followed him, went off, and it led us into the middle of nowhere, into the woods somewhere, miles from the school. Now, we, we, we were probably quite happy about that, to be honest, but imagine if it led us into some kind of swamp and we were all kind of drowning in the swamp, in the quicksand. Not that there was much quicksand in Essex, but this is the picture here. Someone turns up, some people are running a good race, and some wicked people with bad intentions come and lead them astray. They cut in and keep them from obeying the truth. That's how seriously Paul takes this. These people are, are sending you off course to somewhere you don't want to be and don't need to be and shouldn't be. So Paul talks about that. You cut in and kept them from obeying the truth. And friends, that is true about many, many professing Christians. And it's true about some people that you know as well. Started the race well. Somehow, they were led astray by false teaching. They got themselves into a terrible mess because they weren't vigilant, because they weren't part of a church community that cared enough to challenge them about stuff. They kind of isolated themselves from the body. They kind of listened to weird stuff on the internet, filled their minds with nonsense. And somehow they shipwrecked their faith and ended up miles and miles away from where they should have been. And that's what the Galatian churches were in danger of. And that's what Paul is warning them against. Now, 
verse one, quite a famous verse. Paul says this, stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, you all know what a yoke is. I don't don't suppose anyone's actually carried a yoke before. A yoke is that great big massive wooden beam which two oxen carry to pull something along or perhaps in, in days gone by slaves. They were putting this kind of great big wooden thing strapped into it and had to drag it along. And Paul refers to circumcision as the yoke of slavery. So he's quite insistent that this this seemingly harmless practice of cutting the body, marking the body, is actually going back in some very significant way to a yoke of slavery. It's an interesting choice of words. A yoke is heavy, a yoke is burdensome. Something that's carried by slaves, not by free people. No master or law would ever carry a yoke, only the peasants and, you know, the yokels in the fields carrying this. Now these people were pag- had been pagan people. They were not Jewish people previously. They'd been probably slaves to all kinds of pagan practices and all kinds of superstitions and weird stuff that was going on in their province of the Roman Empire. But you know, it didn't matter what kind of slavery it was, whether it was slavery to the Jewish law or slavery to paganism, it didn't really matter. If you are not a Christian, you are under some kind of slavery. Whether you you admit it or not, you are under slavery to the fear of death. You are under slavery to your sin, to the guilt of your sin. You are under slavery perhaps to some kind of false religion or perhaps to some kind of atheism or absence of religion. Whatever it might be, you are under slavery of some kind if you are not a Christian. These people, these dear Galatian Christians, have been set free from slavery, bondage to their pagan practices. By faith in Jesus Christ, they've received salvation as a free gift and yet they were in danger of going back to a different kind of slavery by turning back to the Jewish law of which circumcision was a sign. Circumcision was a badge of slavery. In the Old Testament, circumcision was quite acceptable. It was commanded by God. It was a mark of people who were saved by faith. It was a visible mark and a reminder but it was never a means of entering the covenant community of God's people. It was always by faith. That was a visible sign. And yet these people, these Judaizers, are making circumcision into a requirement of salvation. If you don't get circumcised, you can't possibly be a true Christian. And that was wrong. And Paul was utterly opposed to that. Acts chapter 15, the council of Jerusalem, Peter says this, why do you try to test God by putting on necks a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? So Peter says, when when this matter came up, even the Jews have not been able to bear this burden. And you're trying to impose this on Gentiles? Very serious. Now, it gets even worse. Look at verse two. Mark my words. This is Paul being very serious, very intentional. Mark my words I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to you that every man who lets himself... Oh, I'll come to that in a minute. You are trying to be... Sorry, verse 4. You are trying to be justified by law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. So two things there. If you let yourself be circumcised, you become alienated from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. 
So we can hardly say this is a kind of trifling matter. It didn't really matter if you were circumcised or not. Paul says, no, it does matter because if you allow this to happen, if you start putting your trust in the law, you become alienated from Christ. You will fall away from grace. It doesn't mean necessarily they're going to lose their salvation, but it's, it's possible even for true Christians to lose their peace, to kind of fall away from the grace that, that is theirs because they get back into some kind of bondage. Paul warns them about this. None of us here, I believe, want to be alienated from Christ, do we? We want to be united to him, gathered to him, close to him. And yet, dependence upon the Jewish law and its rituals and traditions meant that these people were in danger of going back to slavery, being alienated from Christ and falling away from grace. So Paul would say it's vitally important what you believe about how you're made right with God. Paul, I believe, would have been puzzled and anguished and angry about the vagueness today about the gospel. Churches who don't really see it as that important, what you believe or how you come to God. It's totally alien to the vast majority of Christianity, historical historical Christianity. Men believed something and they taught it and they proclaimed it. They weren't vague because this is what saves people's lives for all eternity. We need to get it right. Now, I want to point out to you verse 3. Again, I declare to you, every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is required to obey the whole law. Now, I had to think about this verse. What does this verse mean? Well, I think there are two possible meanings, and I think both are probably true. And different commentators, different people who write about the Bible have different opinions. But I think it's saying this. If you let yourself be circumcised, why be picky about certain aspects of the law? The law, the Old Testament law, came as a package. You couldn't pick and choose which bits you observed and which bits you disregarded. You have to take it all as a package. So if you believe that you can be saved by keeping the law, and you believe that circumcision is part of that, then you better make sure that you obey every single part of that law. You better make sure that you can observe all the feasts, the dietary laws, everything that's commanded in the first five books of the Old Testament. So Paul is saying it's ridiculous if you think you can just be circumcised and that that makes you right with God. No, you have to obey the whole law. It's a kind of entire entity. The other thing as well he could possibly mean by this is that, you know, if if um, if you think you can be saved by keeping the law, you need to make sure that your observance of it is absolutely faultless if you want to be right with God. Because it says in James, if you break just one point of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. So if you think, if you delude yourself to thinking that you can be good enough by keeping the law to get you into heaven, to make you right with God, to justify you, then you better make sure you never, ever break God's law in any way. You observe everything to the last dot, and that way you might be saved. Well, if that were true, if that were possible, you could be saved that way. But of course, it's a non-starter, isn't it? Because not one of us could do that. I can't sit down tonight and say, okay, I'm going to be saved by the law, by obeying the law, because it's too late. I've already broken it a million times. You know what? And that law stands against me and says, you are damned. You are going to hell. You have broken God's law, and it speaks against me, and it enslaves me. But who rescues me from that? Jesus Christ. Only he who took that, lived that righteous life and took upon himself the punishment for breaking that law. The wrath of God poured out on him. That's what sets us free from the law. So Paul says here, it's very important. If you think you can be saved, try and, try and keep the whole law. Just try keeping the whole law, see how you get on. But you cannot be selective. 
a beautiful phrase, isn't it? We give him our sin, he gives us his righteousness. We should glory in that, my friends. We give him our sin, he gives us his righteousness. That's the gospel. You know what? The saving work of Christ is incompatible with human effort. These people were trying to combine the two, a kind of uneasy alliance, trying to save yourself at the same time trusting in Christ. It doesn't work like that. It's either Christ or your own efforts. You cannot try and mingle the two in some kind of uneasy mixture. It just doesn't work. Because you know what? If you try adding human effort, it destroys grace. Because grace is something you cannot deserve. You do not deserve. You cannot earn. It's given to you as a free gift. All you can do is take it with open arms and say, Lord, thank you. I receive it. I believe. I trust in you for salvation. Once you start to add anything to that, you've already fallen away from grace. Because you're trusting in yourself. You're saying, the cross of Christ is not sufficient for me. I can contribute something to that. A pretty poor illustration. It's like somebody giving you a very lavish, expensive present, costing thousands of pounds. You know, Andy Carroll's wristwatch, 20,000 pounds. We heard that at a conference yesterday. Somebody gives you a 20,000 pound watch, you offer them a few pennies as payment. Maybe your great aunt gives it to you for Christmas and you try and pay her with a few coppers. Is she going to be impressed? She'll take your money. Thank you very much. That's what it's like when we try and pay something back to God. Feeble, pathetic, useless. You know what? You know what motivated Paul more than anything else? It was the glory of God and the glory of Christ. Any attempt to try and earn our own salvation steals the glory from him because it makes it sound like his work is not enough for us. No, the reason Christ died for us is because we're utterly useless and helpless, drowning in sin. We need a saviour to rescue us. Now look at verse 12. How are we doing for time? Not too bad. Sorry, verse 11, I meant, not verse 12. Paul says this, Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. Now, I found this quite a strange verse because Paul clearly was not teaching circumcision. So why does he say this? Well, I believe at that time people were accusing Paul of being a man pleaser. They were saying, well, he he changes his message depending on the audience he speaks to. Isn't that a despicable thing to do when somebody changes their message to different people, to suit people, to please people? Well, Paul was was not guilty of that, but people were saying that he was. They were saying, well, to, to a Jewish audience, he would preach circumcision to keep them happy. But to Gentiles, because he wanted to win lots of converts, he made it easy by kind of dispensing with circumcision. So they were accusing him. But Paul says, well, if that's true, why am I being persecuted? You know, people who preach circumcision are not persecuted by the Jews. The Jews are only too glad to welcome people like that. But when people start preaching, no, this is not necessary anymore. All the law that you've trusted in is obsolete. That's when persecution starts. You know, the the children of the slave woman persecute the children of the free woman. You know, friends, this message of the cross is so offensive, isn't it? It's the most glorious message in the world, but it's so offensive to people, to the flesh. That's why persecution comes. Paul was preaching this message to the Jews. It's radically offensive 
that you Jews are no better than Gentiles because of your ethnicity, your background, your law, your rights, your rituals. Your ethnicity can't save you. You know what can save you? Not the great glorious Messiah coming on the clouds that you thought you were were gonna get, but actually this crucified man on the cross. That is your Messiah and that is what saves you. None of this other stuff matters. Can you imagine how offensive that would be to a Jew who was zealous for his law? You know what we said before, Paul was just such a man before, wasn't he? Before he met Christ, he was a man who put his faith in the law and his people and his, all this stuff. And he dispensed with all of that on that road to Damascus. He just chucked it away like a load of rubbish. It had its place for its time, but that was gone. Those days were gone because Jesus Christ is what saves. So the, the offense of the cross, the cross offends human pride you know what adding human efforts to the cross takes away the offense of the cross so if people were circumcised suddenly the cross is no longer offensive because human effort has a part to play and people like that because people want to feel they can contribute something you know friends people look today in many many places for salvation you go out into the streets of Brighton talk to people go to the north lane and talk to people go to the pier ask people what they're trusting in people are trusting in so many different things they still need to hear about the cross. We need to make, make sure, very sure, that even though we preach the cross, people will persecute us and hate us. This is what we glory in as Christians. Without that, there is no gospel. And any attempt to add any kind of effort of our own to that, to try and please God according to our works, nullifies the cross. It takes away the offense of the cross, but it also takes away the power of the cross to save. Right, how are we getting on? So Paul was not afraid to take the inoffensive route. He didn't set out to be offensive, but he wasn't trying to be inoffensive to try and please people. You know, he could have had an easy life preaching some kind of circumcision. You know, that would have meant bondage for his hearers. But the cross opened the way for salvation and for freedom. Now, where are we? Let's go back to verse 5. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Now, you might say, well, I thought, we, I, I thought I was righteous already through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, you are, if you're a Christian, you're righteous, you're right with God. But this is talking about the final judgment when all of us will stand before God and books will be opened and the book of life will be opened. On that day, how do we know that we will be vindicated by God? How do we know that we'll be welcomed into his kingdom and not thrown away into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels? How do we will not know, we will not stand there before God and see that, that anger, the fury of God? You can imagine how terrifying that will be. How do we know that? Well, what does it say here in verse 5? Again, by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. We will get that final verdict of not guilty on the judgment day because of faith in Jesus Christ, because of his work. That's all that will prevent that from happening, that judgment. Belief that Jesus Christ was subjected to the judgment to save us. That's what we hope in. And as long as you have faith and hold on to that faith, you can look forward to that day of judgment with confidence that there will be no condemnation for you because of Jesus Christ who's taken all that sin upon himself. So I want you to see that Paul was absolutely 
right to be concerned about this. He wasn't overreacting, he wasn't being divisive, he wasn't being judgmental. He was preaching something because this is a matter of life and death. And the gospel is. And Paul says, these people who are telling you you can save yourself are a menace. They cause confusion, they keep you from obeying the truth, they lead you to a place where you've fallen away from grace and from Christ, become alienated from him. No wonder Paul is angry with them. You know, deceiving others is a serious matter. What does he say here? Verse 9, the one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. If, I'm trying to think of an example. If your children were at school one day and the school caught fire and there's this kind of plan to evacuate the children from the building, but some evil person, for whatever reason, directed those children away from the fire exit into a place where the fire was at its most fierce and those children perished, and you heard about that. How would you feel about that person who did that? Well, probably you'd be absolutely furious with that person. Words wouldn't describe it as a parent, how angry you would be for that person that led your children to destruction. How much more serious will it be for a person who has misled people and deceived people and preached a different gospel or led people away from the true gospel? What excuse will that person have before God on the day of judgment? Friends, we need to pray for preachers and pastors because it is a fearful thing to mislead people. And even tonight as I come here, I'm doing my best to bring the word as accurately as I can, but it is a fearful thing to mislead people. But you know, it's a fearful thing when God's people turn off their brains, don't open their Bibles and don't actually read for themselves what God's word says. You are making yourself extremely vulnerable if you do not read God's word and study it. Reading the Bible is not just, you know, a kind of thing that Christians do because Christians do it. We need the Bible, we need the word of God to keep us on course so we are not deceived in this world of so much confusion. So Paul says, clearly, these people will pay the penalty. Sadly, he doesn't rejoice in that, whoever they may be. Just a quick aside on verse 12. It may seem a bit harsh, it may seem crude, and it may seem sarcastic. It probably is. But there is a logic to it, actually. And I don't want to sort of dwell on this because it's not very nice, but if you think that cutting off a small piece of skin can contribute somehow to your salvation with God, the logical thing to do is cut off even more, isn't it? Because that will surely give you even more merit with God. I think that's why Paul says this here. He's not just being rude and crude for the sake of it. You know, if you you can be saved by your own efforts, why not go the whole hog and just do everything to try and save yourself by your own efforts? All completely useless, of course. Right, the last 10 minutes. Second question. Does Christian freedom mean we can live however we like as Christians? If you say yes, you know, you're out the door now. (laughs) No, I'm joking. But you know, people have this accusation, don't they, that Christ promotes sin. And that, that's, not, that's as old as the hills. You know, that, that, that thing right back to the dawn of Christianity. Oh, your, your, your Christ promotes sin. You know, the Jews were horrified by this. Well, you know, we have our law which keeps us in check. Everybody knows what's expected of them. You know the film Fiddler on the Roof? Has anyone seen that film? It's one of my favorite films, Fiddler on the Roof. You know, the whole village, everybody knows their place because of tradition, because of their kind of practices. The law was like that for the Jews. Everybody knew what was expected. 
what they had to do to be right with God. Suddenly you're telling me we're not saved by the law anymore. The Jews, why then should anybody obey God? You're telling me that you're going to get the same reward that we expected by keeping the law as a gift of grace? Why should anybody bother to live a Christian life? Why do we just kind of eat, drink and be merry? Because we're going to go to heaven. We've got this kind of immunity from judgment. So it doesn't really matter. Some people are horrified by that, some kind of legalists and moralists, and rightly so. Other people think that's fantastic, don't they? It sounds like the best offer you've ever, you've ever heard. You know, free ticket to heaven. As I said, immunity from judgment. Live as much as you, do as much as you like, and you're going to go to be with the Lord. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. So they cast off all moral restraint. Some people in the early church were doing this as well. They were flaunting their sin. They said, look how sinful we are. But it doesn't matter because God loves us so much. The more we sin, the more grace will be shown to us. Look how free we are. We're such a free people. We can do whatever we like. It doesn't really matter. Still true today, isn't it? There there are Christians, professing Christians, who wear their freedom as a kind of badge of honour. But they misuse freedom. They allow disgraceful and ungodly and unbiblical behaviour to proliferate because they're free and it doesn't really matter because they're going to go to heaven. And if you challenge them, they call you a Pharisee and a legalist. They say, oh, don't tell me that. So I remember very sadly a girl in my old church years and years ago, none of you know her, will ever meet her probably. This girl was um, living with a non-Christian. She was a Christian church member and she moved in with a non-Christian boyfriend. The church elders, very lovingly, godly men, got alongside her, said, listen, sister, we don't think this is a good idea. She left the church in a huff. She wrote a rude letter calling them all Pharisees and saying, oh, you know, is that, is that true? Is that right to live like that as Christians? Sorry, just one example from my own life. I'm sure you can think of other examples. We cannot allow our freedom to mask ungodliness. It's a kind of license for immorality in the church. When Paul condemns legalism, condemns the circumcision group, he's not saying that, you know, there's no kind of boundaries in the church. People today in the church who are exhorting us to live Christian lives are not necessarily Pharisees or legalists. Often they're godly people who are just encouraging the church to retain its savour in this world so we don't lose our saltiness. And that's, it can very, very easily veer over into judgmentalism and legalism, but it's not necessarily that way. And I think this is a big issue in churches today, and it's actually knocking on the door of our church as well. And if it hasn't yet, it soon will, because licentiousness... This kind of, you know, license to do whatever you want, it doesn't really matter, it's kind of casual Christianity, is alien to the Christianity of the Bible. And I want you to be very careful, it's like walking on a knife edge here, you can easily slip over into kind of misunderstanding what I'm saying. We are not to be enslaved to rules and grim obedience, but we're not to misuse that freedom that God has given us. It's not people seem to kind of see it as binary you know you're either you're either completely free and just do what you like or you're a kind of pharisee and you're you know you're just a religious kind of fruitcake both those extremes are wrong freedom is real and precious for a christian but it's not to be misused 
Look what it says here. We almost finished, by the way. Verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Now, we haven't got much time to talk about it. Next week, we'll kind of pick up on this. But the sinful nature is the part of us which is opposed to God, which does the things that God hates by nature. Before we were Christians, all of us were controlled by the sinful nature. When we put our faith in Jesus, that sinful nature was decisively defeated. Paul puts it this way, we was crucified. And yet, it still rears its ugly head from time to time, doesn't it? Not from time to time, almost every day, if you're anything like me. But Christ's death does something the law could never do. You know, I heard, heard something this week. Someone said the law is like an overbearing husband. Okay. Let me try and remember this correctly. So, it's always right. It only speaks to condemn you, and it never lifts a finger to help. You, you know, the law could show us our sin. The law condemns us as guilty, but the law could never change our behavior, could never, never change our hearts, could it? You know what? In some magnificent way, the gospel of Jesus Christ deals decisively with our hearts so we can live for God. So we're no longer in bondage to the old ways of this life and this world, of our sinful nature, of our sinful desires and inclinations. You know what? I thought about this. I said this earlier. Christ does not stop us doing the things we want to do. He stops us wanting to do the things that we used to do. That's a big difference. That's what Christian freedom is. I no longer have the desire to do the things I used to do before I was a Christian. It's not that I'm kind of bound by these rules. I can't do this. I can't go out drinking. I can't do... I don't want to drink anymore. You know what? I don't want to mess around anymore and do the sinful things I did. I do sometimes struggle, but I don't want to do it. My heart has been changed by Jesus Christ. You know those things which kept me in bondage? Self-centeredness, wickedness of all kinds. I've been freed from those things, gloriously freed. I remember when I was freed, it was like grace flooded over me and I knew I was free. It's a reality, brothers and sisters. It's not about keeping the rules and being restricted. That's what people don't understand. The Christian faith is not about keeping rules for the sake of it, things that you don't want to do. You actually want to do those things that please God because he's changed your heart. Now I could say a lot more about this. Look at this. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is repeated so many times in the New Testament. This idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. I mean, I did wonder why he didn't say here you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and strength as well. But I think that's implicit. You can't be a Christian unless you do that. Although we all fall short, of course. But the outworking of faith is love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That is what the Christian life is all about, is loving people. And let this be the mark of our Christian conduct. Let this be the prism that we look through. When you think about doing some kind of thing which you know you shouldn't do, ask yourself the question, is this loving to God? And is, this, is this loving to my neighbor? In fact, let's, let's make, make a resolution. I'm sure you do this anyway. Let's make this a resolution in our church. Everything we do, let's say, is this loving to my neighbor? Is this the best way I can bless my neighbor? My neighbor mean primarily brothers and sisters in the church and, of course, the whole world as well. Is this the most loving thing to do? 
Is it the most loving thing to do to sit and, I don't know why I keep picking on this example, sitting in the pub on, on Saturday night and having eight pints as a Christian, you know, waking up with a hangover and going to church late because I've got up late and I'm knackered. Is that really what God wants? Is that a loving thing to do? Is it really a loving thing to do to just to gossip about people in the church? Is it a loving thing to do to kind of skip church altogether because I've got better things to do? There's so many examples, aren't there? I mean, I'm not picking anything particular. Just, I've just things popping into my head. Look through the prism of this. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you do that, that, that sums up everything that God wants from people. Love each other. Pray for us that we, we, we will be a loving church. I think we are. We need to grow in this love for each other. That pleases God. Just to finish, I want to give you a picture of Christian freedom at work. You might still say, well, you know, you could live how you like. I want to give you a picture of three, three different churches. And this is a bit of a caricature. I'm sure you would find churches which are like these. So I'm going to read, read what I've written here, okay? So this is church number one. So this church teaches that you have to live in a certain way and do certain things to keep on the right side of God. This church is big on rules. This church emphasizes obedience. This church is extremely controlling. It's more like a cult than a church. It has laws and rules for every single petty aspect of life which are strictly enforced. You've got to dress in a certain way. You've got to be at every meeting, otherwise the elders come knocking at your door. You must give a certain percentage of your money which goes up every year. Sounds like quite a good church, actually. You must read the Bible for an hour every day and prove that you've done it. You must not do a long, ever-growing list of forbidden things. And if you transgress even the slightest law, you're going to be disciplined and humiliated and booted out of the church if you continue. So they talk about the cross. They sing the hymns of grace, but there's no grace. People don't understand grace in that church. It may look very godly, very pious, but there's no heart change amongst the people. Not a lot of joy around, not many smiling faces. Some people love churches like this. It appeals to the flesh. Sort of pride and confidence in externals. You look very religious. You fear that if you kind of dispense with the rules, there'll be chaos. So you make even more rules to make sure everybody toes the line. You know, friends, the Pharisees were in bondage like that, and so were the Judaizers, I believe. Strict, joyless religion. That's church number one. This is church number two. Now, you might recognize this one a bit more in our culture. And I'm not thinking of a particular church or a particular church. I'm thinking just kind of a general caricature, but an extreme example. This is a church that teaches all about freedom, all about freedom all the time. This is the be-all and end-all. Christ loves me just the way I am. It doesn't matter what I do. Church is man-centered. The cross is relegated. They don't really care for the message of the cross. It's there somewhere, but right in the background. It's seen as embarrassing or offensive even by the Christians there. The key for me is to have a wonderful life with heaven thrown in at the ends. There's not much concern for obeying God or finding out what pleases him. There's low moral standards and people get very defensive when challenged. It's not a holy place. You know, friends... If you minimize the cross of Jesus Christ, you minimize sin, you don't understand grace. That's what people misunderstand. You can talk about God's grace. If you don't talk about the cross, you do not understand God's grace. Because grace is given to people who don't deserve it. We don't wallow in our sin. Oh, we're so sinful. I remember in Ukraine, they had this horrible hymn. I'm sorry, I'm pointing at you. Horrible, she didn't sing it. It was a hymn, it's like, I am a worm, not a man. I am a terrible, I can't remember the exact words. It was an awful, dirgy song. 
It's true, I am a sinner. You know what? I'm a sinner saved by grace. I guess I'm more sinful than I could possibly imagine, but God loves me more than I could possibly understand or comprehend. If you don't feel you've been forgiven much, you don't love much. That church, that free church, is also in bondage to sin. They promise themselves freedom, but they are slaves to depravity. They still live like unsaved people. There's no real heart change. What kind of gospel? You saw this week people nailed those, those um, documents to the doors of, of cathedrals in this country. They said something like this, you know, what kind of gospel is it that doesn't offer change for people, freedom from sin? If you live just like the rest of the world with no change, what is your gospel? Just a kind of happy, happy, Jesus is there for me. What is the change in your heart? I don't need that. I need a change from my sin. I need deliverance. Not just from hell, but from, from judgment and from the, the rottenness and the corruption of my flesh. And that's what Jesus offers. You know, friends, a church may seem very loving, but actually, if it's tolerating immorality and false teaching, it's not loving at all. It's deceiving people. It's a bad witness, and it weakens the church, and it causes others to stumble. But this is church number three. This is a church that upholds the true gospel. People know they're sinners, but they know they're saved by grace. So, you know what? They don't have to continue to live in sin. They don't want to live in sin. They understand something about the cross of Jesus Christ. They're delighted by the grace of God and by the gospel. They glory in the cross and in the Lord Jesus. They trust only in the work of Jesus. They could not hope to be saved by anything apart from faith and grace. A heart change has taken place. The Holy Spirit gives them a desire to please God and to be holy. Sin doesn't master them anymore. You don't have to burden people like that with rules and laws and restrictions because it will become just natural for those people. You don't have to fear somehow they'll kind of go spiraling off into ungodliness because those people, have, they've been changed by Christ. They've met Christ and they will obey him because Christ means to have a holy people for himself and his people are holy. These people are eager to find out what pleases the Lord. They encourage each other, exhort each other to live in a way which pleases God. They don't feel offended when somebody comes to them and says, listen, brother or sister, I really think we ought to kind of make more effort to do this. It's not a rule, it's not a law, it's a good principle to help us in the Christian life which pleases God. And this church has high doctrinal moral standards, but they're not taking any pride in their own works or their own godliness. They're taking pride in Jesus Christ and the cross. They're a completely free people. And grace is bubbling through that church like a stream on a summer's day in the forest somewhere. It's that that joyful sound of bubbling grace, free and available to all who take it. You know, the only response to that grace is to live a life, saying, this is my saviour, I will live for him and give my all for him. Whatever he says, I will do. And whatever he says, don't do, I will not do, because I bow the knee to him, and he is my Lord, in the truest sense. That is a free church. I wonder which kind of church is like Calvary Church. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.